Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, biochemist Nick Lane on his new book, The Vital Question, Why is Life the Way It Is? And then there's a repeat for writer Seth Mnookin on Richard Stark's Parker novels. Nick Lane is a biochemist in the Department of Genetics, Evolution and Environment at University College London and leads the UCL Origins of Life programme. He was awarded the 2015 Biochemical Society Award for his outstanding contribution to the molecular life sciences. He is the author of Life Ascending, The Ten Great Inventions of Evolution, which won the 2010 Royal Society Prize for Science Books, as well as Power, Sex, Suicide, Mitochondria and the Meaning of Life, and Oxygen, the Molecule that Made the World. And he's now the author of The Vital Question, Why is Life the Way It Is, which we're going to be talking about today. So, Nick, thank you for talking to me. Thank you, it's a pleasure. Biology, which is what you do. In the last, I don't know, 150 years or so, there's been a number of major revolutions, natural selection, cell Mm -hmm. theory, DNA. What else is there to do? (laughs) Well, there's energy, I suppose, is the the last one. Maybe it's not the last one, maybe there's others. But uh, I I think what's missing, I mean, there's an awful lot what you've just said there. This is what I'm writing about is not in any sense a challenge to Mm -hmm. any of those. But there are some questions remaining, and they're quite big questions. And, uh, And a lot of it comes down to... Uh, what we can actually predict. You know, mm-hmm. Science is supposed to be about predictions, and, and evolutionary biology has always been quite bad at that. We can explain things after the event, mm-hmm. um, and we can often understand it quite well after the event, but it's very hard to guess what's going to happen next. Mm-hmm. It's quite similar to economics in that sense. It's really hard to guess when the next global meltdown is going to happen. Now, the question is, you know, is, is it inevitably so, or are we missing something? And I, I think what we are missing is energy, and that's really what this book is about, because living is, is, is not just a static system. It's, um, you know, we're, we're running all the time, we're, we're turning over all the time, mm-hmm. and that has constraints, and those constraints can inform the way we think about evolution. So that's where I was going to go next, really. What is this? What's the vital question? What is, the, in general terms, the, the theme of this book? Well, the subtitle kind of gives away the plot, really, at least the English edition does. Uh, so why is life the way it is? Mm-hmm. It's actually very peculiar. So in a nutshell, it looks as if life arose very early, so far as we can tell, maybe four billion years ago. Mm-hmm. Then it got stuck in a rut uh, at the level of bacteria and another group called Archaea that look a lot like bacteria. Mm -hmm. So for two billion years or something, the the world was just bacteria. And in fact, they haven't changed in four billion years. They've really remained bacterial right throughout Mm -hmm. that whole period, which is an amazingly, you know, it's a mind-bogglingly long period of time for bacteria to Mm -hmm. just remain bacteria. And then all complex life... So that means, you know, you and me, but plants and fungi mm-hmm. and so on as well. Even things like amoeba, they're large, complex cells, very, very different to bacteria. Mm-hmm. Well, we all share a, a single common ancestor. And that ancestor, I mean, by definition, arose once. Any common ancestor had to <laughs> arise once. But it really looks as if, as if it was a bit of a freak accident. There hasn't, you know, bacteria don't seem to have some natural tendency to get more complex. Yeah. It seems to have happened once. And all complex life shares this peculiar set of properties. We're all sexual. Mm-hmm. And we all have a nucleus in the cell. Various traits like phagocytosis, the ability to kind of engulf other cells. Mm-hmm. You know, we still do it in our immune cells. They can engulf bacteria and so on. So there's all these traits which are common to all of complex life and which we don't find in bacteria and and there, there isn't a good explanation for that in terms of 
standard evolutionary theory. It's just a peculiarity. Before we start talking about how life arose in the first place, I guess we should tackle that thorny question of what we actually mean by life. Yes, it is a thorny question. Uh, and I'm not sure that there's a good answer to it. Mm. it. It's a little bit like you know, the Heisenberg's uncertainty principle in the sense that it's kind of necessarily indeterminate because it's a continuum, really. And it's hard, you know, people will argue about whether a virus is alive or not. Um, and it actually, it, it's alive in the sense that it makes copies of mm-hmm. itself. It's alive in the sense that it, it, it behaves with what looks like a kind of chilling purposefulness mm-hmm. uh, and can take out you know, a person. But it's not alive in the sense that it's not metabolically active. Yeah. And so where do you draw the line? Do you, you, know, you can argue all day about whether a virus is alive or not. So what about a jumping gene, a retrotransposon? Mm-hmm. You know, that's even less alive than a virus, but it still behaves with this, mm-hmm. it still copies itself. It's still got this kind of purposeful intent about it. Um, and that's, a, you know, that's an emotive way of putting it, but we can see that. We kind of recognise that it's, it's not behaving like a mineral, it's behaving mm-hmm. like something that, that has a motivation. It doesn't really, but it behaves like it does. So these questions become really important when you think about the origin of life yeah. because the origin of what are, what are we talking about? What is life? We've got this continuum. And I, I think the best way to see it is to say that life is in some way parasitic on its environment. So we obviously we need to eat and we need to breathe oxygen. Uh, but plants are parasites as well. Mm. In, in, less so, but they, they need carbon dioxide and they need sunlight and they need water. Uh, and viruses are parasites. They need a whole lot more because mm-hmm. they're that much simpler, but they have the context of the cell that they have infected and so on. And so I think the thing you'd say about all of life, it's not a definition, but it, it's, it's characteristic of all life, is that it's parasitic on the environment. And so that kind of emphasises the importance of the environment. In terms of the origins of life, that's where I was going to go next, because, I mean, this may be the wrong way to, to describe it, and it might have been once, it might have been many times, but... Can we describe like a point where you know, there was something that wasn't alive that then gave forth to something that, that was alive? Can you see what I mean? Like a substance that could be called not alive. I think um, it's precisely this problem that it's a continuum. Yeah. I think by the time you've got a, a cell, yeah. recognisable as a cell, it, undoubtedly it's alive. And as soon as you've got a cell, uh, it's so much better at doing what it does that anything else which is kind of halfway there is mm-hmm. just going to get wiped out. So... Once life has originated in the, in, the, in the way that we know it, it's got DNA, it's got proteins, it's got a, a cell structure yeah. and so on, it, it can generate copies of itself using its own metabolism. As soon as you've got that, then, then it takes over the whole world and, mm-hmm. and no kind of partially formed uh, stage of life is going to have a chance. But all those partially formed stages of life on the way there really yeah. are a kind of continuum right the way up yeah. to it. At some point you must have replicating molecules, mm-hmm. kind of a non-cellular or not fully cellular context, uh, there must be some kind of a metabolic flux. There must be something making uh, organic molecules. The building blocks required, nucleotides, amino mm-hmm. acids and so on, to make proteins and, and, and DNA. All of these things, I think, have to happen in the same environment. Mm. But they can be, I'm not sure you could call them alive, but they behave in a lifelike way, I suppose. It's the energy flux that underpins all of this mm-hmm. without continuous flow of both carbon and energy um, there's nothing even remotely similar to, to life and, and, and so what you need is an environment which is giving you this continuous flux mm-hmm. of carbon reactive carbon and, and, and the energy required to make it react then you've got something which is life-like it's not life but it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's in the right direction and so let's talk about that environment so for a long time the most popular theory has been this idea that most people will know, which is a primordial soup. The mm. idea that there would have been, you know, a swamp or something, and perhaps there was, you know, electricity in the air, lightning or something. But you contest this. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, this is a it's a great idea, and it, it's it's one of those things which uh, it kind of it won't go away, and it's partly because it's such a good idea. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, all these old Frankenstein stories and so on. It's always lightning. You know, the electrical discharges that, that mm-hmm. bring something to life. So the idea of lightning hitting a soup and somehow congealing a cell out of it, it, it's kind of appealing to the human imagination. But there's all kinds of difficult problems with it. And it's, it's actually it's difficult to prove that it's wrong necessarily. Um, it's difficult to prove anything when you're trying to think about things that might have happened four mm-hmm. billion years ago. 
but it's just less conducive as a reasonable environment. So I, I tend to think in terms of what does it take to make a cell? So this is a description, it's not a definition at all, mm-hmm. but you need a continuous supply of reactive carbon. Uh, and what life actually uses is carbon dioxide yeah. today, pretty much. You need, to, you, you need something to react it with, and, and again, today, cells use hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Um, now, those are generally not present in, in, a, in a soup in that way. You need a continuous flux of energy. What cells use today are proton gradients uh, and things like ATP. Um, so, again, it's not clear where they come from in a soup. Mm-hmm. We need some form of compartmentalization. It's another issue in a soup. We need replicators, but the replicators are made of carbon, and that requires this carbon flux and energy flux to produce the replicators. We need catalysts. Uh, People talk about mineral surfaces and things like that, but again, you don't necessarily have those in the soup. And then the other thing which I think is really key is is, uh, excretion. Mm -hmm. It seems like a silly point in a way. I think there's a lovely quote from Nietzsche somewhere saying that man will never mistake himself for a god while he still needs to use the toilet. Um, but, it, you know, it, it's universal across life. Mm-hmm. You have to get rid of the waste products. And the problem with the soup is they just build up around yeah. you. And so I, I favour hydrothermal vents as an environment because that, they, they solve all of those problems mm-hmm. quite neatly. Now, that doesn't mean it's true. It's just that it's a far better way of thinking, structuring questions about the origin of life, experiments that you can do, and so on. Classic piece of science, the hydrothermal vent idea was, I mean, that was hypothesised before anybody had even been down and discovered that those hydrothermal vents actually existed, Mm. hadn't they? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, uh, people saw plumes of warm water Mm. on the the surface of the ocean and and, and realised that there must be hydrothermal vents down there. That was in the 70s. They, they, they went down with a submersible Alvin mm-hmm. uh, and discovered, discovered the black smoker vents. Since then, we've discovered another type of vent, um, which are the ones I write about in the book, mm-hmm. these alkaline hydrothermal vents. They're actually very, very different. Yeah. And in my view, at least, they're more conducive to, to life for various reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, they, these ideas go back quite a long way. Actually, the, the ideas of life originating in vent-like systems goes back much earlier than the Milliuri-type chemistry and mm-hmm. primordial soups and so on. It goes back to, to the 19th century. Uh, and they became displaced in part because the electrical discharges and, and things are, are just so evocative to the human imagination that all this earlier work just got forgotten about. I'm Greg Jenner, you're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's talk about the energy idea again. How does, how does the cell generate the energy? Well, this is the peculiarity which is right at the heart of the book. So what happens when we breathe is we strip electrons from food, and we pass those electrons to oxygen. Now, that technical term is reduces the oxygen mm-hmm. to water, but basically we cobble the electrons onto oxygen Water is the waste product, and we breathe it out as, mm-hmm. as water vapour. So we're reacting, in effect, hydrogen with oxygen. We're, we're extracting the hydrogen uh, from food. Now, you know, if, you, if you've got an airship made of hydrogen and you, you, uh, you put a match to it, it explodes. And that's not what we do with mm-hmm. our food, obviously. What we actually do, though, is really peculiar. We, we strip these electrons and we pass them down a kind of a wire. So there's, there's really an electrical current. Mm-hmm. And that wire is sitting inside 
the membrane, and that membrane is inside our mitochondria. And the mitochondria once were free-living bacteria two billion years ago. So uh, you know, each of our cells has a few hundred mm-hmm. mitochondria in it, and this is where respiration is going on. This is where we're burning our mm-hmm. food in oxygen. So what happens then is the electrons are stripped from food. They're passed down this, this wire of proteins. Uh, they end up on oxygen, and that electrical current drives the extrusion of protons, so these are the positively charged nuclei of hydrogen Mm -hmm. atoms, across the membrane. And nobody ever guessed that Mm -hmm. it would be like that. This was one of the most counterintuitive discoveries of the 20th century. From Peter Mitchell, Mm -hmm. 1961, he originally spelled it out. He got the Nobel Prize for it in the end, but it it, it never really grabbed the public imagination in the way that something like DNA did, because Mm -hmm. it's just so peculiar and, and it's, uh, it doesn't have that kind of obvious beauty to it that the double helix does. But all life pumps protons across the membrane. That's what it does. Bacteria do that. That's why we still do it, because our mitochondria were bacteria. The archaea that I mentioned, they do that. Mm-hmm. It happens in photosynthesis. It happens in respiration. It's basically it's universal. And, and it's a very peculiar way of going about it. The fact that it's universal implies that it must have arisen very early. Uh, and, and then everything else inherited it from a common ancestor. Yeah. So that common ancestor, we're getting back already towards the origins of life. And the question is, well, why does energy work that way? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there, there, there are various possible reasons out there, uh, which, I, which maybe I, I won't go into now, but the question is, how did it get started? Mm. And the nice thing about these particular vents that I was talking about, the alkaline hydrothermal vents, is that you have natural proton gradients across natural, thin, inorganic barriers... And in theory, at least, they can drive the same kind of things that they still do in cells today. So these proton gradients, they don't just give us our energy. They also, in the case of bacteria, they're used to fix carbon. So to take carbon dioxide out of the air, cobble hydrogen onto it, and make organic molecules, that's driven by proton gradients as Mm -hmm. well in bacteria. So it really is central to how a living works, how a cell turns itself over, how it grows, how it reproduces itself. The whole thing is driven by proton gradients across membranes. And in a, I guess, an illustrative way, how like that's going on in all of our living cells. We obviously can't feel it or tell it's going on, but like how powerful is that energy force? Well, overall, it gives us, the, you know, at, at rest, um, we have about the, the same power as an electric light bulb, for example. I mean, we, we ought to be glowing, really. Um, if you think about how many protons are pumped, it's, you know, it's a simple enough calculation, but there's a, there's a lot of uncertainty about all the numbers. But we have something in the order of 50 trillion cells, is, is roughly what people think. Uh, and we, we have certainly at least a few hundred mitochondria per cell, which, which is putting us up there at around about 500 trillion mitochondria in you or me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's about the area. So the internal membranes in these things are very convoluted, twisted on themselves. Uh, and so we have the area of about four football pitches uh, of, of mitochondrial membrane, and they pump something like 10 to the power of 21 protons per second. Uh, now, there's 10 to the 23 stars in the known universe. Mm-hmm. So this is almost as many protons as there are stars in the known universe every second throughout our lives. I mean, it's an extraordinary feat. It's mind-boggling. <laughs> We've already stated that about 4 billion years is the sort of estimate of when life got started. And that was, you know, something similar to bacteria. Bacteria still mm-hmm. remains that very simple form of life. Why did it stay simple for so long? Because it was 2 billion years before we mm. get to the more complex cellular life, which we'll, we'll talk about in the second half. But let's, let's end this way. I'm talking about why did it take so long? Well, I think they are constrained. I mean, I think everybody would agree that they're constrained in some way. So, you know, they, they basically had what amounts to infinite periods of time mm-hmm. uh, in practically infinite population sizes over... Four billion years. The bacteria and the archaea, they, they, they're very different in their chemistry and in their genetics, but in their, in their structure, they're amazingly similar. Mm-hmm. So they're obviously constrained in pretty much the same way, probably by the same thing. Uh, now, what I suggest is, is the problem is, that, uh, is precisely the way that they pump protons across membranes. So in the case of bacteria, it's the, it's the cell membrane surrounding the cell that they're pumping them across that. And that gives you immediately uh, surface area to volume constraints. So as you become larger, your surface area increases by the square Mm -hmm. of the dimensions and the the volume, which you need to pay for energetically, if you like, increases by the cube. 
Um, so you, you, you've got that as an issue. So as bacteria become larger, um, they become, in effect, less efficient. But they can internalise these membranes and have quite complex internal membranes. So it's not as simple as that. And it seems that, well, there's two things we know here. One of them is, is, is that, uh, well, all, all the mitochondria that we have in our bodies, they all retain a little genome of their own. And that genome seems to be required to control respiration mm-hmm. in some way. And so there's a prediction you'd make from that. If this hypothesis, which comes from, from John Allen, if that is correct, then you would say that bacteria also would need genes to control respiration. And so if they become larger, and there are unknown examples of giant bacteria, um, then you'd predict that they would require lots and lots of genes. Uh, and that's actually what we do see. So yeah. these giant bacteria, I say giant, I mean, they're, they're giant cells. You can, see, you can see them just with the naked eye. They're, less, they're about half a millimetre in diameter. They have nightmares. <laughs> yes. No, they're not going to eat you or anything like that. But they, they have you know, hundreds of thousands of copies of their complete genome. Uh-huh. And when you calculate... Uh, what, well, how much energy does it take to run all those genomes? The answer is, you know, vast amounts. Mm-hmm. And so what's different with the mitochondria is that they are cells and they, they compete among themselves. And, and so in, in our own context, they, they lost genes. And so rather than having thousands and thousands of copies of the same genome, they get smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. So in effect, bacteria get get no advantage from being larger in terms of their energetics. They may have other advantages, but the fact that we see so few of them implies that they're they're pretty marginal, those advantages. And they seem to be constrained by this problem of respiration, breathing across their cell membrane. If they become larger, they become less efficient. If they control respiration by having copies of genes next to it, the running costs for the, all those extra genes are so great that there's no real advantage in, in being bigger. So I think that's really what constrains them. And I've, I've been arguing that for some years, not just me, obviously, but uh, you know, I've, I've, I've given lectures to audiences around the world and had lots of questions on this. And you always expect the killer question that's going to trip you up and make you look a fool, um, something you'd never seen. And actually, it's never happened with yes. this. It's, 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 uh, it's, it's quite a persuasive argument. It's difficult to see a, a, a way out of it. And I really think that the very fact that bacteria have remained so simple, that this is along the right lines. to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny and I'm talking to Nick Lane and we're talking about his book The Vital Question, Why is Life the Way It Is? And we've just left bacteria, Nick, after two billion years. Um, as you alluded to in the first half, you know, the, the obvious answer to why was it not, I guess, evolving all the time. Like you said, two billion years, a, a massive environment, all, you know, an infinite amount of chances for lots and lots of different versions of evolution to happen and that obviously didn't happen. And then there's this moment, which I'll ask you to explain, called endosymbiosis, mm-hmm. which is probably a freak accident. Well, it feels that way. I mean, maybe that's too strong a way of putting it. But um, essentially, I've mentioned the mitochondria yeah. already. So they started out as free-living bacteria, and they've become kind of whittled away until they just become specialised to mm-hmm. generate energy for us. They got inside another cell. We know that pretty much for a fact. It's more questionable what that other cell was, yeah. but it looks as if it was almost certainly an archaeon. Now, that's to say this third domain of life, they look a lot like bacteria, um, but they're very different in their genetics. And yeah. if we look at our own genomes and the genomes of plants and, and fungi and pretty much everything else, we find that we are a chimeric mix of genes that came from the archaea and genes that came from the bacteria, plus our own genes which arose later on but always from that as a starting place. And so we are, we are chimeras, and what we don't really know is what was the basis of that relationship. 
It appears to have happened just once. Mm -hmm. It's possible that it happened on hundreds of occasions and that on each of those occasions it it failed for some reason. Um, Now, it might have failed because it was outcompeted. But that doesn't explain why you don't see anything for the first two billion years or so. And it doesn't really explain either why we don't find, you know, was it really outcompeted every single time? So there's, there's there's this large group... Um, which we thought were missing links, which we thought were, were, were evolutionary intermediates between bacteria and, uh, and complex eukaryotic mm-hmm. cells. So our own type of cell is called eukaryotic. It just means true nucleus, and all our cells have got a nucleus where yeah. we put the DNA. So this group, which we call the archozoa, and I can only apologise about the names because they, they get confusing, um, but the archozoa just literally means the first animals, and they're single-cells things, and, and they mostly go around and engulf other cells by phagocytosis. They are very simple, and it, they look like missing links. And it turned out that they're not. It turned out that they all uh, became simpler, so they had more complex ancestors, you know, hundreds of millions of years ago, mm-hmm. and adapted to simpler ways of living, so often being parasites or something like that. Now, there's two things that come from that. One of them is, is that we now know that there aren't any, well, we, we cannot find any genuine evolutionary missing links. So we've got this huge gulf now between bacteria in their simplicity at one end of this scale and the last common ancestor of all complex cells, which was itself a very complex cell. And all of these intermediates turn out to have evolved from that complex ancestor. So there are no missing links. But... The very fact that they're there means that they kind of evolved down into, to fill this niche. And in doing so, they became simpler. And that means, well, it, it means that simpler cells filling that niche don't get outcompeted by the mm-hmm. more complex cells that are all around. They thrive there, and they thrive there in part because they are simpler. They're more like bacteria. And so that, I think, poses a problem. It doesn't really give an answer, but it, it, it questions, you know, were there really multiple origins of complex life? There were mm. multiple origins of these kind of intermediate stages, but always from more complex ancestors. Uh, and so the best we can say, I think, at the moment, is it, it was genuinely a pretty rare and unlikely event. That idea, then, that, you know, that it might have only happened once, possibly freak occurrence... So something profound about the idea that everybody's into now, that we're likely to find life elsewhere. Yes, I mean, I think there's, there's probably a, a hope that we will find something like ourselves out there. Um, and I think, you know, I guess a lot of people are, would be disappointed if we didn't at least find bacteria elsewhere in the solar system. Mm-hmm. It would be shocking if we didn't find bacteria elsewhere, you know, in the galaxy. Uh, but... It does question how easy is it to get really complex life. Now, coming back to the issue, what we actually have is is we've we've got a population of cells within a cell. And that in itself is a challenge. And I have a feeling that you probably, there have been hundreds or thousands or millions of occasions where you've got cells within a cell, but it's what happens next is the question. And you've got to get along together. You've, you've got to, I suppose, synchronise your life cycles, things like that. You, but, but, but it's very easy for it all to go belly up and for you to be back where you were as, mm-hmm. as, as a bacterium. And I, I think the, the, the second aspect of this whole thing is about why all complex life shares all of these traits, yeah. why we're all sexual, why we all have two sexes, why we mm-hmm. all have a nucleus, you know, all, all of this long, quite a long list that we all share... It's a very productive way to think about it, to say, well, they all arose in the context of this endosymbiosis. So an endosymbiosis Mm -hmm. is just cells inside a cell. It's symbiosis in the sense that they are sharing um, metabolites in some way, so the waste product of one is used by by the other one. We don't know what that relationship was. There are Mm -hmm. good ideas out there, but it's very hard to prove it. But I think the key point is it's, it's very hard to make it work, and that's what we can get at by standard evolutionary biology is to try to work out exactly how hard is it to make it work and can we explain why sex arose in this context. Yes. I want to get us on to then why sex came about and all of those you know, few things you just mentioned, again, the thing that's central to all of them is the mitochondria. So tell us a little bit more about that mitochondria. First of all, why is it... I mean, the one thing people would know about mitochondria is it's only found in the female line, so why is it? Yes, well, that, that in itself is immediately a peculiarity. I mean, they're found in males as well as females. It's just that they pass down sure. the, the, the female line. 
Um, why? Um, you know, there are interesting questions there, and you know, there are answers out there, but we don't know if they're actually true or not. Mm-hmm. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And these are questions partly you can try and do a mathematical model to try and work out what exactly are the selective forces operating on it. And, and, and they, they make predictions which you can try and test in the lab. Does it really happen as the maths predicts it ought to happen? Mm-hmm. As soon as you say the word mitochondria, I always have the feeling you're going to kind of lose half the audience and, and gain another half, perhaps, with a bit of luck. But it, it, it's, a, it's a difficult word, and a lot of people are not quite sure what it means. Um, and it, all, all they are is the power packs inside cells, mm-hmm. but they derived from free-living bacteria, they've always retained their own genes, and that means they've retained to some degree their own interests. Uh-huh. Because as soon as you have genes, you can have individuality to some degree, because those genes will differ between different mitochondria. And, and, and as soon as you have populations of mitochondria, which can differ between themselves, they can compete with themselves, and, and then you have selection operating at two different levels. You have yeah. selection at the level of the cell as a whole, and you have selection at the level of these smaller cells mm-hmm. living within the cell, and they may conflict or they may synergize in some way. And in the end, they've synergized, but that's probably only because they overcame lots of conflicts over mm-hmm. evolutionary time. And one of the ways that this conflict is, uh, is minimized is by only passing the mitochondria down the female line, for example, that limits the number... You know, If you have two parents and they both pass on their mitochondria, you've immediately introduced two populations that can fight with each other, in effect. If only one parent passes it on, they're less likely to have a fight. Uh, and there's all kinds of other mechanisms to try and prevent, in effect, conflict between, between the mitochondria. And that's where, I mean, sex comes in there as well, doesn't it? In that, you know, that's why sex... Well, I'll ask you the question. Yeah. Why, why, how does sex come into so, it? Well, so, so, so sex was, was described as the, the queen of evolutionary problems through the 20th century, and some of the greatest evolutionary biologists, people like John Maynard Smith, mm-hmm. you know, spent their careers trying to understand why sex evolved. And actually, most of the time, they were they were not asking why sex evolved, more about why does it survive, because it seems to be, at face value, much worse than just cloning copies of yourself. Yeah. And I think we've answered, uh, they have answered that question to a reasonable degree now. But what the question which we've never really addressed was, well, what were the conditions that gave rise to it in the first place? Yeah. You might think it follows naturally from understanding why it exists. Mm-hmm. But the reasons why we think it exists, um, which is to say... Uh, you get recombination uh, between genes, and that breaks up whole genomes. So rather than having an entire kind of genome as a, as a great big lump, mm-hmm. and you select for the entire lump, you break up the genes into pieces, and each gene can be effectively scrutinised by selection individually and independently, and each one can be selected by itself. Well, bacteria do something a little bit similar. They do yeah. something called lateral gene transfer, and it's not like sex, but it achieves pretty much the same thing on mm-hmm. a much smaller scale. And so the question then about, well, why did sex arise in the first place then takes on a, 
you know, a, a new urgency again because the solution which has been provided by these great evolutionary biologists doesn't explain why it started yeah. in the first place from bacteria that already break up their genomes in this way. And so again, it can be valuable to think in terms of well, what's happening. If you've, got a, if you've got a population of cells and they've all got cells inside them, well, what would you expect would happen from first principles? And some of the things you would expect to happen is that some of these bacteria living inside are going to die and they're going to spill their own DNA and that's going to be taken up by the host cell by standard bacterial mechanisms. And that's going to increase the mutation rate, for example, it is, but it's also going to put genetic parasites into the host cell. And, and we know for a fact that they ran rife very early mm-hmm. on because they're still there as the introns in our genes. So these non-coding regions, very often they, they derive from bacterial parasites, mm-hmm. in effect. There's all kinds of things like this, which I, which I address in some detail in, in, in the book. But uh, the question is, can we use standard evolutionary genetics to to explain why in this particular setting where you've got bacteria with their own interests living inside you trying to manipulate you in some way can you explain why why sex arose and i think the answer is yes in broad broad outline and the other question that naturally follows on from that and you talk about in the book as well is why only two sexes yes i i I mean that seems to boil down to the fact that if you if if both sexes pass on uh, the mitochondria then they're more likely to to have a fight. Mm-hmm. It's not only about fighting, though. It's also about the accumulation of mutations generally. Mm-hmm. So it's not only... In effect, what you have, if, you, if you've got a whole population of cells within a cell and they can all differ, the problem is that it's very hard for selection to, to see them. So if they... Let's just imagine you've got 100 different mitochondria in a cell and some of them are good and some of them are bad. Mm-hmm. And then two cells fuse together and they pass on another mixture of good and bad mitochondria... Um, what you end up with over time is a kind of mixing and matching. So all the cells have got populations of good and bad mitochondria, mm-hmm. and there's no variance between them. And, and selection can't tell the difference between stuff that's all the same, in effect. And, and this is operating at the level of gametes, so, so, so the sperm and the eggs and so on, but also at the level of the individuals that inherit all their mitochondria from the sperm and the eggs. So if the sperm and the eggs have got a mixture of mitochondria, then selection can't tell the difference between mm-hmm. individuals. Now, what, what all of these mechanisms are doing is they're having only one person passing on the mitochondria, but also just taking a small sample of those mitochondria. It's increasing the variance between uh, individuals. So each individual has a clonal population of mitochondria, something approximating that, but the differences between different individuals becomes greater. So it's a sampling effect. Mm -hmm. And it means that selection can see, are these mitochondria any good or not? So all you're doing is, from this mixture, you're apportioning them out. So some individuals get only good ones, and Mm -hmm. some individuals get only bad ones, and there's relatively few in the middle. And so selection operates on that. The good ones survive, the bad ones are eliminated, and over time, uh, and it takes generations... Selection means uh, that everything gets better. The the, the best mitochondria are selected. So it's all about sampling. And this kind of question also, rather unexpectedly actually, but again from mathematical modelling, turns out probably to influence the origin of the germline itself. So even the existence of females and males with Mm -hmm. females producing large egg cells and sequestering those egg cells very early in development in the ovary uh, and effectively putting them on ice, sometimes in our own case for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this is, again, this is fundamental biology, and we don't really know why we have a germline and plants don't yeah. have a germline, and, and sponges and early, early animals don't have a germline either. So we don't really know how a germline evolves. And some of these ideas surprisingly explain it. Is it really true? It's really hard to know, but, but you know, you can at least start to test them. Is, the test is, is it true?
I'm Caitlin Doty. Go and read some great new journalism and explore the interview archives at littleadams.com. The other thing you look at in the book is death. And, well, why do I have to die, Nick? Why do I have to die? (laughs) It wasn't inevitable, was it? Um, not, uh, not, not as a result of aging. So there are plenty of animals out there that don't mm. age. Uh, everything dies in the end. And uh, I suppose the, 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 probably the most positive way to look at death is without death, there wouldn't be evolution mm-hmm. and there wouldn't be this wonderful world around us. You know, it wouldn't even be bacteria. Uh, so, so evolution needs death. Uh, and, and, and everything that's good in the world comes from that, uh, along with everything that's bad in the world, I suppose. But, uh, so death is, is necessary, but what about ageing? That's a, it's a different question, because you would have, you know, sponges don't age. Mm-hmm. Uh, ageing is something that evolved to happen. And again, it stems from this distinction between a germline and a soma. Mm-hmm. So the soma is the body, and the body, the, the disposable soma is that you know the, the body is going to die, and then mm-hmm. and then it survives for as long as it needs to to maximise uh, reproduction. In effect, maximise your your offspring. So if you have a statistical likelihood of living for a certain period and leaving behind two children in that time, mm-hmm. you will tend to optimise your resources for that time. So as soon as you've got this distinction between a germline and a, and a soma, you're beginning to see an evolutionary pressure to optimise resources on having children within that time and then letting it go, in effect, after that. But again, the mitochondria are centrally involved in it. Energy flux is mm-hmm. centrally involved in it. Most people will have been familiar with the free radical theory of ageing, but these free radicals are coming from the mitochondria. It's had a bad decade, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not really clear how much truth there is in it. But it's certainly true that there is a relationship between metabolic rate and rates of free radical leak and lifespan. Quite how they link up, do they do it in a causal way, or is it an association? There's still a lot of argument about that, but uh, there, there's certainly a link there. A question that... Uh scientists like yourself will get asked a lot by laymen is something along the lines of are we still evolving um towards the end of the book you look at you i was going to say speculate but you predict some things um let's talk about you know the the future of biology where is it going it's a very difficult question to to answer i think the tendency is, and this is not something I discuss in the book really, but the, the tendency is to think in terms of uh, human evolution is that we, we're getting bigger brains or something like that. And we tend to think in terms of progress in some way, and that's not the right way to think about evolution. It's, mm. it's, the, it's the kind of human, emotionally satisfying way to think about it. But, you know, it, it, it may very well be that our brains are shrinking. That's still evolution. I suspect that we are becoming adapted to living in urban environments and things like that. We're probably better at tolerating <laughs> city life and, uh, and, and living in an ant heap, in effect. So evolution is going on, for sure, in those ways, but I'm not sure that's a terribly interesting way for evolution to be going on. As far as the predictions are concerned, I discuss the energetic constraints on, on life in the book, and I say mm-hmm. this, is, this has constrained evolution that it explains why there was this kind of two billion year delay, it explains why complex life arose only once and why there isn't a tendency to keep throwing it up, and it explains why we have all these traits like sex and sexes and and ageing and so on. But within those constraints, obviously, we see huge variation across life. I think a a central theme of the book is that once you've you've stripped away those constraints, once you've overcome those constraints Mm -hmm. and dealt with them, then you're just left with with physics and DNA, in effect. If you're going to fly, then you're going to need something like wings. Um, but, but there's umpteen ways of DNA inventing that, you know, of natural selection in, mm-hmm. inventing that. So it's almost as if the constraints have gone. So I suspect that if we found life elsewhere, the likelihood is it would be bacteria. If it wasn't bacteria and it was complex life, I think it would be surprisingly similar to us in not not necessarily in having arms and legs and fingers and so on but in terms of having sexes mm-hmm. uh, in terms of having things like mitochondria so in in those more fundamental aspects of life i think it would be probably similar elsewhere in the universe but those constraints are pretty minimal in comparison with the sheer genetic variation that we see around in the world just one final question then at the beginning of the show i rather facetiously suggested that biology had got nothing new to discover we're sat here talking in your office in the in the lab at ucl 
So what sort of things are going on here right now? Uh, well, in my own lab, um, we're trying to uh, simulate uh, the conditions in alkaline hydrothermal vents. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are, we're trying to show that these natural proton gradients in these conditions really do drive the first steps of, of, of life. It's early days, so it's, it's, I, I, I do touch on some of the experiments we're doing in the mm-hmm. book. The other major line of things that we are doing relates to the origin of complex life, and mostly at the moment that is modelling of one sort or another, uh, done by some very able PhD students, mathematicians and physicists by background. Um, but there are very specific questions that we're trying to address, and we want to try and test some of the predictions in, in, in the lab itself. I think... In, in, in the broadest of terms, what do we know, what don't we know? We have ideas and we're testing some of these ideas, but this gap between bacteria and complex cells is a black hole. Mm. Uh, we really don't know much about it. We really don't know how the components of our own cells arose. And that means that we don't really know why they go wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, this is a serious black hole. Yeah. It's right at the heart of medicine as well as biology, because mm-hmm. medicine depends on, on, on how these things interact with each other, which depends on the constraints of, of their evolution. And so, you know, it, it's easy to think we should spend all our money on cancer because people are dying of cancer or Alzheimer's disease and, 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 and that uh, it's, it's imperative to solve these societal burdens. But, you know, I would question how far can we go in answering those questions if we don't understand why cells are the way they are mm-hmm. in the first place. So I think there's, a, there's, there's room not just at the level of human curiosity to understand where we came from and what the forces were, but also in, in terms of med- medical research and, and, and why things go wrong in the way they do go wrong mm-hmm. and, and what we can do about it. So that's what a place like UCL is about. This stuff doesn't come from me. It comes from everybody around here. And it's a real buzz, and it's a, you know, it's a pleasure to be here. So, great point for us to finish. So, I've been talking to Nick Lane. We've been talking about his book, The Vital Question, Why is Life the Way It Is?, which is out now from Profile Books. Nick, thank you so much for telling me about it. Thank you, a real pleasure. Ben Goldacre, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. So I'm on the phone with writer Seth Manukin. Seth, I've actually had to come up with something for us to talk about. So what are we going to talk about today? We're going to talk about the Parker novels by a writer named, uh, or not named, a a writer called Richard Stark. uh, And that's one of the many pen names of uh, mystery writer Donald Westlake, who died a couple of years back. So let's talk about who Donald Westlake was, first of all. As you said yourself, he had numerous pseudonyms. Yeah, he was a, um, he had to have been one of the most prolific mystery writers of the of the 20th century. And he was, even before he published, he was writing constantly. He started out in the mystery stories for the pulps and ended up several different series, but became well known for mildly comic crime series that he wrote under his own name. And then, uh, and that, those were called the Dortmunder books. And then he had at least a dozen different pseudonyms. I've never tried to figure out how many books he published in total. It's over a hundred, I think. It's certainly over a hundred. Yeah, that would not surprise me. So the Parker novels are the ones we're particularly going to talk about. And I think there's there's around 20-ish of them. Yeah. Um, people will be familiar if they've never heard of the writer or even the character. They will be familiar with him because of his appearance in numerous films. Although, interestingly... Until the very latest one, which I presume is after Westlake's death, he's never called Parker. Yeah, he he actually wrote 24 Parker novels total. And uh, there was really 
as far as I'm concerned, there was really only one movie adaptation that kind of did the character justice and actually was even a half-decent movie, and that was uh, Point Blank that came out in the late 60s, which, if anyone hasn't seen it, is, is really quite impressive. There was a movie called Payback, and it's based on the same book that Point Blank was based on, and that's the first of the Parker books, The Hunter. And then there was the one that came out last year, which I was mildly excited about when I saw I started seeing the commercials, and then that ended up looking horrible also, so I didn't even read it. In Point Blank, Lee Marvin plays the character that is Parker in the books, um, not Parker in the movies. I think he's named Walker in the movie, if I remember correctly. Yes, he's he's Walker in the um, yeah, Lee Marvin. In the Lee Marvin movie, right. But, but I have to say that Point Blank is one of my favourite films of all time. I absolutely, absolutely adore it. It's got it's that great mix of, of sort of hard-bitten crime, but also it's like incredibly sort of 60s arty and lovely, beautiful cinematography. And it, exactly. it makes LA look amazing as well. Um, tell us about Parker then, the character. So, so who is he and what's he like? So... He is, I guess you wouldn't really describe him quite as nihilistic because he does have a worldview that he believes in pretty strongly. Um, It's a fairly amoral worldview, although he does have his own type of morality. But essentially, he is a master thief. And uh, if thieving necessitates killing, that is not a problem at all. He doesn't go out of his way to kill. But it's something that is encountered essentially in every book and sometimes in really, really spectacular ways. And some of the capers that are pulled off, there's one book where uh, he and a gang of thieves that he's assembled try and essentially rob an entire town. And the description of the dynamics between Parker and, and the other thieves and just the sheer excitement of what's going on, I think those were the two things that really seized me. And it was also, I found really, really satisfying to read crime novels where you weren't rooting for the good guy. You know, I mean, he is clearly someone who you end up rooting for, or at least if you're a fan of the books. Um, but uh, he is also very unambiguously a bad guy. And there's also, well, I guess he's the, um, you know, he's, he's, he's the best of a bad bunch, I guess, is the... Uh... Well, yeah, I mean, it's not only he's the best... He, he's, I mean, I think one of the things that appealed to me about him is that he's... It's not just the best of a bad bunch. He's sort of the best at what he does. Sure. You know, it, it kind of the sense is like in the world. And he's always striving to sort of be better, to plan things better, not because he has some goal of being a platonic, reaching the platonic ideal of thievery, but just because it makes his life easier. And one of the interesting things about the books is everything always goes wrong, usually because of some other party that screws up horribly. So he's a professional. Yes. But at the same time, there's almost a sense the people that he's up against, they're not necessarily even mafiosi, they're businessmen. There's all the point that this is about capitalism as a criminal enterprise rather than, you know, the mob as a, as a criminal yes. enterprise. And that he's just a, a very, very, very good businessman. Yeah, a, a very, very good businessman if, I guess, if business involved, yeah, thieving and murder. But <laughs> um, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, he's not, for the most part, he doesn't have grudges. He thinks they're a distraction. And it's not even one thing that's interesting about him is he's not thieving to amass a huge pot of money. What he does is he goes and pulls a caper and then sort of retires to this house that he lives in for X amount of time until he decides that he needs some more money. And then he goes and pulls another caper. But you're definitely right. There's none of the sort of pretending that this is about something deeper than it is than you get in like the Godfather movies or the Sopranos. It's not supposed to be an allegory for life. It is possibly supposed to be an allegory for, you know, our relationship with our work and our our relationship with the system of finance. But I think, again, in the way there's something that's so satisfyingly pure about them. And that was one of the things I responded to. And also, when I read them, I read them essentially one after another for a year straight when I was working on a book. And it was almost like I would work all day on a book and this was like mental ginger or something to clear my palate. (laughs) It just put me in such a different mind frame and such a satisfying mind frame that I really feel like it sort of helped me get through that process. What book was it you were writing then? Because I'd be interested to know how that... It was my most recent one. It was The Panic Virus. 
Oh, okay, okay. Because I was going to say, you've written about the business of sports, for instance, which I thought would have been a good companion for this. <laughs> yeah, right. No, no, there were... Um, I read these... Uh, yeah, I mean, I've always loved mysteries, and I've always loved good mysteries. And for some reason, I hadn't... I had read Slayground, which is just an unbelievable book, probably a decade before I got into all of these, and I don't know why I didn't pick up any others, but then when he died, when Westlake died in 2008, there was, and there is, a jazz pianist named Ethan Iverson, who's in a band called The Bad Plus, who was a huge Westlake fan and actually got to know Westlake towards the end of his life, and wrote up this incredible sort of description of all of his books and of everything that was in there, and uh, that was what turned me on to, that was what sort of got me going with the Parker novels. The obvious place to suggest people start with these would be The Hunter, which is which is the first one. Yeah. But do you have a favourite? Um, I like the... I mean, I, I think there's not a lot that builds story to story. You can pick up almost any one of them and not worry about missing anything. But I think there's something that is even more satisfying about reading them in order because it was they were published over decades. He would sometimes not write a Barker novel for uh, years and years and years and then come back. I think the last one was not that long before Westlake died. And the first one was in 1966. So 1966 to 2008. You can see this character develop in Westlake's mind. And every now and then there are things that continue from one book to the other. But yeah, The Hunter is a good place to start. Slayground is, it's just so fantastical. It's the plot is Parker is being chased by some thieves who are actually some thieves in the mob, I think, who are trying to kill him. And essentially this all takes place within a shutdown amusement park. <laughs> and it's re- it's just, it's incredible. I mean, it's it's both kind of absurd and totally gripping and white knuckle exciting we've mentioned the films but there's also a recent graphic novel yes not just one graphic novel um now now a series of graphic novels and again that started with uh with the hunter the first book it's um uh, let me just look it up i know his last name is cook darwin yes right 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 um i've only read two of those, both of which I really liked. Let me see how many he now has out. I think he has three or four, and his latest, I believe, is Slayground. Uh, Let's see. Yeah, so he has... Yeah, I'm not entirely sure how many. He has at least four out so far. They're they're really great. I mean, you know, the the, the ones that I've read are really great, and from what I hear, all of them are really great. And these were approved by Westlake because this is the first time that the character has been called Parker outside of Westlake's own work until the the recent Jason Statham movie. Right. Although it didn't, I believe the hunter, the, the first one didn't come out until not long after Westlake had died. But yeah, yeah, which is another thing. I mean, you know, you would almost think someone who wrote over a hundred books would would not be very particular about how his characters were used. But there was like obviously something about Parker that that Westlake really uh, wanted to keep genuine and pure in some way. He was also a scriptwriter because Westlake wrote the um, the Grifters, yes, which is a great film. But also, apparently, there's a lost James Bond script out there somewhere. Oh, really? That is that, yeah. that that's like the holy grail. That's fascinating. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, he wrote. He apparently wrote a, a script to Die Another Day, which was, I mean, an awful film, a terrible, right. terrible film. But he's not in any way credited, so we there's no nobody has any idea how much of his uh, how much of his scripts survived into the into the finished film. He's not credited, and three or four other screenwriters are. Am I correct in thinking that The Grifters is based on a Jim Thompson? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah, right. So he who is who actually helped me get through an earlier book, <laughs> and. Uh, yeah, I, had, I I saw The Grifters sort of when it came out and didn't know either of the writers, and I should probably rewatch it, but yeah. All right, so that's um, Donald E. Westlake, or should I say Richard Stark, that we've been talking about, and his Parker novels. So, Seth Manukin, thank you very much for sharing it with us. Yeah, no, my pleasure, and uh, everyone listening, you should immediately go out and get a Parker novel, although I hesitate to say that if you also have work you need to get done, <laughs> um, because it's very easy to fall down uh, a rabbit hole with these. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. The show is supported by 89Up and hosted by Positive Internet. You can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. 
You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our relaunch website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.